Hi, and welcome to a small, medium at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate stories that heal. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Stanley Krippner, who's going to talk with us about dreams and ESP. But before we welcome Stanley to our show, I'd like to share a little bit of a story with you about dreams from myself, because dreams have been a very important part of my life. In fact, had I not followed information from some of the dreams I've had, I would have never met all the Huichol Indians in the mountains of Mexico. Dreams have told me things that foretell danger to family members and friends, or I've often dreamed when friends were in danger at the moment they're in danger. These things have been very helpful to me. I know often many mothers have dreams about their children, which is a way of them helping to protect them. I was very grateful to have a dream about my daughter and know that I'd come home in time to be, be there when she had an appendicitis. But today I just want to tell you one dream before we start with our guest that I thought was an unusual one. I was traveling to Amsterdam in Italy with my husband while he was going to be on a job assignment in Italy. And we met up with a friend of his in Amsterdam. We had a lovely visit and he told us, we'll see you when we come back in a week and we'll have dinner together. We left him in Amsterdam, flew to Gorizia, Italy. And that night I had the strangest dream that was so intense and powerful. When I woke up, I, I think I was blushing when I was sharing it with my husband because I was dreaming that the man we had just left was making the most passionate love to me that I'd ever experienced in my life. And it was so sensual and so sexual that when I woke up and turned to my husband, I said, I don't know if I can go have dinner with him when we return because I'm going to be too embarrassed by the time we had in this dream, especially for the fact that this was a gentleman who prefers gentlemen. So I knew I was not the kind of woman he really wanted to have sex with. <laughs> so a week later, we go back to Amsterdam. We meet him in the restaurant. And a, a, a very most important part of this dream is that in the dream, he had completely shaven his beard off. And he was a long haired hippie kind of guy with a long, long beard and long hair. And apparently he's had this beard since he was in college. So none of us have ever seen him clean shaven. He's always been a man with a beard. Well, when he walked in the restaurant, there he was completely clean shaven. And my husband and I's mouths dropped because we just seen him a week ago, fully covered in hair. So I said to him, Don, I feel really weird telling you this dream about this passionate, loving sex that you and I had together, but I just have to tell you. So he turned to me and he said, and I said, and in the dream, you were clean shaven like you are right now. So he turns to us and he says, in the week that you were gone, I met the most wonderful man. I think possibly he could possibly be my, my soulmate. I fell in love. He asked me to go with him to Prague. And he said, the only thing was you have to shave your beard. So after years and years, he said, I've had this beard since college. I've never shaved it. He said, I had to shave the beard. And we had the most passionate, amazing sex for days together. And it was a great, great time. And I'm looking forward to being with him again soon. So it was one of my more uh, unusual dreams because I, was, I felt like I was having sex with him. And he said to me, he got a little nervous and said, please don't have any more dreams about me. You're not supposed to be watching me having sex. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I want to say 
that there's so much to say about our guest today, Stanley Krippner. He has held faculty positions in universities all over the country. He was director of the Dream Lab in Brooklyn at the Maimondes Medical Center in New York. Stanley has received lifetime achievement awards from Parapsychological Association, the Society for Humanistic Psychology, and many more. The American Psychology Association granted him an award for distinguished contributions to the international development of psychology. Stanley Krippner has written extensively on altered states of consciousness, dream telepathy, hypnosis, shamanism, and parapsychological subjects. He is author of many books and he has published over 1,000 peer-reviewed articles. He has two new books that he's just released in this last year, Understanding Suicide's Allure and Advances in Parapsychological Research 10. He has another book, I believe, coming up, uh, his memoirs, but I'm not sure yet how he's doing with that. We'll have to find out. But today, let's welcome Stanley Krippner to a small, medium at large podcast. Welcome, Stanley. Oh, thank you, Gail. I hope I can live up to that wonderful introduction. You're a very humble man, Stanley. You have done amazing accomplishments. And I, I know you're approaching your 89th birthday in October. So I have a, a little list of a couple questions I wanted to ask. And the first one, which has always interested me is, what were the types or kinds of experiments that you did in the dream lab? And are they still being used today? I think that for the benefit of your listeners and viewers, I'll make this as simple as possible because as is true in parapsychology, experiments tend to get very, very complicated. Once you rule out all of the chances of ordinary explanations, remember that the dream and ESP experiments were instituted by Dr. Montague Allman, who's a psychoanalyst, and he was having patients who would have dreams about his personal life. Wow. And so he wanted to study this in an experimental setting and was able to get a small grant from the Parapsychological Foundation. And the basic format was to have two people, a sender and a receiver, get together over dinner and establishing rapport and some sort of ambiance. And then the dreamer would go off to a soundproof room with electrodes attached to his or her head and the electrodes would be plugged in so that brainwave activity could be measured at night. Mm -hmm. The sender, was taken to a different room through dice and the dice ended up directing him or her to a sealed envelope, one of, of many, many possible sealed envelopes. This sealed envelope had an art print in it that the sender took to another room and opened it and tried to send the contents of the sealed envelope to the sleeping participant. 
Now, I use the word send and receive cautiously. We really don't know how much was due to the sender projecting the image and how much was due to the receiver reaching out and grabbing the image. Maybe both. But to simplify things, I'll simply call them the sender and the receiver. During the night, whenever rapid eye movements showed up on the EEG, we knew that the dreamer was having a dream. And so we would awaken the dreamer and say, what is going through your mind? And then the dreamer would come up with a dream. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the night, the dreamer woke up got dressed, and before doing anything else, came into my office and would be shown a whole number of pictures, maybe 10, 11, or 12. And at that point, nobody knew what the actual picture was, except for the sender. And so the receiver took a look at these pictures and identified the one that came closest to his or her dreams, and second closest, third closest, fourth closest, etc. So this gives us numbers, and numbers, of course, are of course are very important in statistical analysis. So let's say that the whole series consisted of 12 sessions, 12 nighttime sessions. If there were 12 possible pictures, the chances were one out of 12 that just by chance, the ESP was working. Now, you get up to two, three, four, five out of 12, and here you're hitting on statistical uh, evidence whether or not the ESP was actually taking place. So that's the basic experimental setting. And then at the end of the 12 nights, all of the tape recording would go to a typist who would type up a transcript. And then this would go to three different outside judges. They would look at each night of dreams, the whole collection of the 12 pictures, and would try to match the correct picture with the correct night. Again, using much of the same procedure that the receiver had used. So we had a set of judgings by the receiver, a set of judgings by three outside judges. We took the average of the three. And then we could find out if this is what we call statistically significant. So the experiments went on for about 10 years. And we actually published close to 100 reports in peer-reviewed journals, parapsychological journals, 
psychiatric journals, psychological journals, dream research journals, etc. And can I just ask you one question? What kind of pictures were they? Were like they photographs? Oh, very important question. Famous art prints that had some emotional content in them. Mm -hmm. The one that just comes to mind was a painting by Saul Bellow of two boxers, both members of this club, chose two boxers in a ring. Now the dreamer on that particular night had a dream of going to Madison Square Garden to buy tickets for a boxing match. Very good. <laughs> he, he had never been to a boxing match in his life. But there it was, and he didn't have any other dreams about boxing matches for the rest of these series. Now, obviously, they didn't all work out that exactly, but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. Now, in parapsychology, as you know all too well, there's an emphasis on trying to repeat findings. And we did have several other laboratories trying to repeat our work with dreams and ESP. And two years ago, it was the 50th anniversary of our very, very first session. And during those 50 years, just by coincidence, enough other studies had been done. So there were exactly 50 attempts at Dream ESP, including ours. So what a team of psychologists did was to look at all of the results over a 50-year period of time. And That's an much to our delight, they found out that the replication was quite statistically significant. It was the Maimonides Medical Center experiments that were a little more positive than the others, but not to a significant degree. Uh, some of the other laboratories produced work that was in the same ballpark. So on top of all of that, the psychologists evaluated every single experiment and gave it a score as to how well designed the experiment had been. There is a claim by uh, debunkers, well, as the controls get tightened up, ESP disappears because all of the, uh, all of the flaws can be uh, ironed out. No, that wasn't true at all. In fact, the more tightly the experiments were controlled, the results were slightly better. Not statistically significantly so, but the results were somewhat better. Also, some of the experiments that I did close to 50 years ago yes. were in the most tightly controlled category. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that we knew what we were doing back in that time. So here we have a very intensive study 
of 50 different dream telepathy, telepathy experiments. And it really puts to rest the claim that parapsychological results cannot be replicated. Yes, the results are replicated at a fairly high level of significance. This was published in the International Journal of Dream Research, by the way. Okay, so. Uh, That's very, well, very important that, because I know in parapsychology, scientists are up against so much um, skepticism and the, 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 the experiments have to be double blind and done over and over again in order to get the scientific community to, to accept them. Where if it's, a, if it's a drug that they're putting out in a pharmaceutical, I don't think it's as scrutinized as much as it is on these parapsychological things. Yeah. Good point. So most of these experiments were done with telepathy with the sender and the receiver. However, we did a few experiments with precognitive dreams. There was a psychic sensitive from England by the name of Malcolm Besant, who had a reputation for having dreams about the future. Mm -hmm. And we had a sponsor who paid for him to come to Brooklyn for a summer and do an eight night study. And what happened there is that he would go to bed, go to sleep, his dreams would be recorded. And then in the morning, a staff member again would throw dice and the dice would direct him or her to an envelope. And the envelope would have a picture. And so the question was, how close was the picture to the dreams? Now, of course, the dreamer, Mr. Besant, couldn't judge this himself because uh, by this time he knew what the picture had been. So he had to depend upon the team of outside judges. <laughs> well, the results are highly significant for those eight nights. And then we managed to get him back for another summer. And this time we went even a step further. Not only was there a picture, but there were what we called some multi-sensory effects. For example, a envelope was chosen that had a picture of a bird in it. But along with it, was a set of slides. Each slide showed birds in the wild, in the rainforest, in the beach, in the water, in a bird cage. And so Mr. Besant was looking at pictures of birds and also listening to bird calls on the audio. Now, when we went back over the dreams, he actually had three dreams about birds on that particular night. And one of them was being in a laboratory where birds were being studied. One was being out in nature where uh, he could actually see the dreams. And so on the other seven nights of the study, not a single dream about birds. 
So when it came time for the judges to do the matching, of course, that sequence was given uh, number one out of the eight. So here we had two summers with a highly gifted psychic sensitive from England, Malcolm Besant. Both of these were written up and published. And over the years, nobody has come up with a alternative explanation. We made sure that all of the safeguards are in place. We even went so far for the second study of bringing in a team of EEG operators from a university. They had no idea what the study was all about. They were being paid to record the dreams. Mm -hmm. So nobody could actually make the claim that somebody knew what the picture was and was feeding information to Mr. Vessant to influence his dreams. Well, that wouldn't have been possible anyway, but as an extra safeguard, the team from another university had no idea what was going on in the experiment. They simply came in, ran the study, took their money and left. <laughs> the next session came up. So we did everything that we could to plug any holes and plug any gaps so that any correspondence we found out would have to be due to ESP, telepathy, or clairvoyance. I'm wondering, I once had a dream. This is, I've only experienced this once, and I was wondering if anyone ever studied on this or whether you've heard a lot about this. But I have a very close connection with a friend named Julio, who's a Huichol Indian from the mountains of Mexico. And he's the only person I had this happen where we both had, we dreamed together. Like he was in his trailer, I was in my house. And the next morning we had to rush to see each other because we'd had this dream about the other person. And when we came to discuss it, we realized we were both in the dream together and we both had, it was, we dreamed together that night. And I don't remember what the dream was about at this moment, but I've never had that experience again with any other person. I was wondering if you ever heard about things like that. Yes, yeah, there's a whole uh, category of dreams like this. Some people call them shared dreams. Some people call them mutual dreams. And they are rare. This is quite true. Carlos Castaneda actually claimed to be able to teach people how to do this oh. and meet some of his uh, his students in the dream world. Now, again, with Castaneda, you're never quite sure of how much is fantasy, how much is actual taking place. Mm -hmm. But at least he is going on record in terms of claiming that uh, shared dreams can be taught. Very, very difficult, very difficult, of course. This is all in his book, The Art of Dreaming. Mm -hmm. And he puts out the instructions uh, if people ever want to uh, give that a try and take him up, take him up on it, yes. I've I had a chance of being in a seminar with Carlos Castaneda while he was still alive. Oh, that's wonderful. The only one in the seminar who had read The Art of Dreaming. 
It had just come out. And so I was very knowledgeable about it. And he told an interesting story about it. He had a publisher who had been putting out his books, best-selling books, of course, for many years. And he owed them one book. Now, when he wrote the book, The Art of Dreaming, he didn't think anybody would believe it. So instead of filing it away in a filing cabinet, he simply, so he claims, dematerialized the book and put it in what he called the second attention. And then when it came time to honor his commitment to the publisher, he had to pull the book back from the second attention and turn the manuscript over to his publisher. Again, who knows, but mm -hmm. it's a good story. <laughs> Makes a lot. So while we speak about um, Carlos Castaneda, I noticed one of the things that when we were asking about our, our talk today was about indigenous groups uh, shamans, practitioners who use dreams, among other items, to diagnose and treat physical, emotional, spiritual, and other ailments. And I was wondering, have you personally experienced with indigenous or other cultures this sort of dream healing kind of combination experience? Well, of course, shamans who go by different names in different cultures usually do work with people's dreams and again they put the work with practical use uh, sometimes a person will dream about an ailment that they have before they know the ailment is coming on in other cases the shaman will have a dream about the person's illness and will uh, know how to treat it now, of course, there are many stories I could tell on this particular topic. The one that, is, that comes to mind was a young woman who had a recurring stomach upset, some sort of indigestion, and she had a dream about going to a grocery store and buying papaya. Mm -hmm. And she started to eat the papaya in her dream and the stomach problem cleared up. Now, she brought the dream to me. She didn't even know what the papaya was. <laughs> and I said, look, you go to a store that specializes in tropical fruits, buy some papaya and you can just, take the seeds out. Some people like the seeds, but you can take the seeds out if you prefer and eat papaya every day. And after a week of eating papaya, the stomach problem cleared up. So somewhere she was receiving information in her dream to help her to get better from her stomach and yes, it was information exactly. that she yeah. didn't even have. It's not like she ate papayas. Well, rolling thunder, the intertribal medicine man who I worked with for so many years often would uh, have a dream about one of the people that he was trying to help out. And he would get information from the dream 
in terms of what herbal remedies to give them. Mm -hmm. He was a master of three different tribes, herbal pharmacopoeia. And so he had a lot of herbal medicines at his disposal. One time when I visited him, he took me to this trailer and it was an old dilapidated trailer, but it was just the thing for him to keep his collection of herbal medicines in. And he showed me all the medicines in neat envelopes or boxes. And then he even had some pharmaceutical samples that physicians had given him instructions <laughs> on how to use them. And he said, if somebody is sick and if something will help them out, I don't care where it comes from, I'm happy to give it to them. Good advice. I even brought him back some herbs from a trip to Central America that I got from a curandera, and he added those to his pharmacopoeia. So yes, dreams are very, very uh, much a part of shamanic uh, lore and shamanic treatment. In fact, um, in the two cultures that I was involved, that I've been involved in for many years, the Mongolian and Wichol, shamans are considered the doctor. They're not just a shaman, they're also the person that they go to, whether it's a physical ailment or an emotional problem, it could be a family problem, it could be a growth, but that's, the, that's who they go to, to, to to help solve their problem. And dreaming, I know with the Weechol, when I was there for a peyote ceremony, at the end of the ceremony, all of the peyoteros, the men that are in charge, all dream together, like we were talking about, the shared dream, to decide who the next governor of their uh, tribe will be or who, uh, who the next uh, person in charge of, of policing will be. And it's all decided in the dream time. It's not like they vote for the person. It's all decided in dream. So dreams in other cultures are, are very important where in our culture, I don't think they put as much importance or significant on the dream. So it's wonderful there's people like you out there writing all these books for people to learn about dreams. Well, as you probably are aware, the International Association for the Study of Dreams has been around for close to 30 years. And we just had a virtual conference. Obviously, we couldn't get together in person, but the virtual conference was quite successful. And every time we have a convention, there is a dream telepathy event. Oh. A, Volunteer uh, is the sender and has a choice of four different sealed envelopes. And again, selects one, goes off to his or her room and spends time during the night trying to send that to everybody at the conference who wants to participate. And then in the morning, a duplicate set of pictures is on display and people take a look at the pictures and each picture is by a box and they write out their dream and they drop it into the box that 
comes closest to their dream. So um, every year there are a couple of dreams that are very, very close to the picture. And again, whether it's by chance or telepathy, we don't know. Remember that this is done in a very informal way. It doesn't have all of the experimental safeguards that the laboratory experiments have, but it's fun for people. And many of them are quite surprised that their dream came so close to the picture that was used. Now, when I talk about the picture, we needed something that was highly emotional in content. A lot of ESP tests are done with very neutral uh, stimuli, but for dreams, which are usually very highly emotional, we didn't want to take any chances. And we go to some very prominent artists like Van Gogh and Gauguin and Rembrandt and Goya, who very often would produce paintings that were highly emotional in nature, either with positive emotions like love and sex and joy or negative emotions like horror and fear and catastrophe. And it doesn't seem to matter what type of emotion is involved just as long as there is something with a feeling tone that can help the center in the transmitter. So of, of the many, 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 many books you've written, many of them about dreams, is there one in particular that you would recommend for our guests? I, I, the one that I thought um, was the one in your collection, but there's so many, so I wondered what you think was Extraordinary Dreams and How to Work with Them. Well, that one I would be happy to recommend because it's still in print. Mm -hmm. Some of the other dreams books I have are no longer in print, unfortunately. But uh, Extraordinary Dreams is something that is published by the State University of New York Press. And it's a print by demand. So as soon as somebody orders a book, they print it out. Mm -hmm. And so they've been selling that book to close to 15 years. And in that book, there's a whole chapter on shared dreams, by the way, like oh. that you had. It's not a very long chapter because they're quite rare, but we did provide examples and also gave some clues as to how some people and their partners might be able to have more of these shared dreams. So that's a good choice. If your viewers want to read something about dreams in ESP, take a look at the Extraordinary Dreams, co-authored, by the way, by my Brazilian friend, Andre Persia, and also by Fariba Bogzaran, who is an American friend formerly from Iran, and both of them have their own background on extraordinary dreams and made some very important contributions to this book. 
did you find as you got involved, I know that was back in the 50s and all, but did you find that your dream life changed as you were doing all these experiments and discovering all this other information about the dream world? Well, we did try to do an assessment of the dreamer and the problem is that we didn't have that many of them. When we found somebody who seemed to have some talent along these lines, we would sort of stick with that person and invite them back again and again. So we did do sort of a survey and the survey was not based on very many people, but both men and women were able to be successful as receivers in the studies. And all of the successful receivers were in some way or fashion attuned to their own inner life. Either they kept dream diaries, they remembered their dreams, they were meditators, they uh, engaged in either psychotherapy or as a psychotherapist or as a client or did workshops to discover more about themselves. So this is a group of, shall we say, seekers who uh, were more successful. In, in being uh, the receivers in the dream telepathy experiments. Mm -hmm. So is your work being carried on still at Maimondes? Is there still a dream lab there or has that closed down now? Oh, good heavens. When I left Maimonides, Charles Otterton took over and then he found a another home for the dream laboratory. Um, actually at a research center in, in New Jersey. And he moved everything to that research center and kept it going for several years until the money simply gave out. Mm. And then Charles Honerton, very brilliant young man, he had never gotten a PhD. So he went to the University of Edinburgh, deciding it was now time for him to get a PhD. And then he would have a little more gravitas to bring in money for continuing the experiments. Unfortunately, halfway through his studies, he had a sudden heart attack and died. Oh. Yes, right in the company of a friend of mine who was with him during those last tortured final minutes. Oh, oh what a shock, what a surprise. But he made wonderful contributions to the field of parapsychology. I should mention that one of the experiments that he and I and Montague Allman did together was sort of a pilot study. It was not one of our formal studies, but for years I had been 
friends with people in the Grateful Dead rock band, and Jerry Garcia, who was the leader of this leaderless group, said, you know, we're going to be doing a number of gigs in Portchester, New York at the Capitol Theater. Mm -hmm. And we'll be doing six gigs. Why don't you see if uh, you can have a dream telepathy experiment each of those nights? Wow, was this in the late 60s? Yeah, so uh, actually so about 50 years ago this spring, because I have been on podcasts and interview shows, people that wanted to rehash that whole series of experiments. And so there was a group, current group called the Jimmy Styles Strings, Jimmy Springs rather, and Jimmy Strings did a whole series of concerts at the Capitol Theater in commemoration of the dream telepathy experiment. Wonderful. The Capitol Theater had actually kept records of everybody who had bought tickets 50 years ago, thinking, well, in 50 years, we'll invite them all to the anniversary. And so sure enough, they were invited back and many people actually took advantage of that and were in Jimmy Strings' audience for the reunion, so to speak. Now, back 50 years ago, what I arranged to do was again, to get very powerful emotional pictures, but not art prints, this time they were on slides. Mm -hmm. It had to be on slides because that would coincide with the light show at the Capitol Theater. So one of our research assistants would go to the Capitol Theater and would wait until the music had started, until people were tripping or a little bit high. That's actually, this is the 1960s. Right. Think of going to a Grateful Dead concert without having ingested marijuana or a psychedelic. And then out of nowhere, the light show flashed on the screen you are about to participate in an ESP experiment. Fascinating. I've never heard the story. Oh, good heavens. Uh, Malcolm Besant is at the Maimonides Dream Laboratory in Brooklyn. You're going to see a picture, try to send this to him. And then the assistant would toss a coin. There were two possible slides, both of them emotional uh, paintings, and he would slip the slide into the projector, and there it was on the screen, and then the Grateful Dead would make some comments about the slide, and then they would start playing music again, and the slide would be on the screen for half an hour, and Malcolm Besant, who did the precognitive dream studies with us, was now doing a telepathy study, and he was at the dream laboratory where another assistant was waking him up every time he had a dream. And so once again, we had in this case, six nights of dreams, not eight nights or 12 nights, which would have been preferable, but you have to work with what you're given. 
And so we had six pictures, six nights of dreams, and we had two outside judges trying to match the picture with the night of dreams. And the results were statistically significant, not as robust as in our other studies, but remember, this was only six nights. We had never done a six night study before mm -hmm. either. And this either was one or 12. Was this hundreds of people that were either uh, tripping or high at the concert? And then they would see the image on the screen. And then would they all be asked to project that to the man in Brooklyn? Was that? Yes, that's, right. that's a lot of people. A lot of people, I think close to 2,000 people. Wow. Concert, yes. <laughs> and so, but you had, did get significant results from that. Yes, it's a surprise. You got uh, what we call in statistics, the 0.05 level, meaning there's only one chance out of the 20 that this is due to chance. Our other studies, like one chance out of 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, but then we had larger numbers to deal with. And when you look at the whole range of the dream telepathy studies, you get one followed by 100,000 zeros in terms of how likely it is to be due to chance. So, so tell me, oh, go ahead. Yes. So anyway, the Grateful Dead study uh, was written up. And as I say, now 50 years later, it's being written up all over again. I'm doing the interviews all over again. <laughs> and people are hearing about it for, who weren't even born at that time. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful thing to share. In fact, I just lived down the road about two or three miles from Mickey Hart's house and uh, the drummer of the Grateful Dead. And I've never personally met him, but we actually, I had looked at that house to buy and I ended up buying the house I'm living in right now. So I've heard he's turned it into a magnificent recording studio in an unbelievable place. But I happen to know where he lives because that was the choice I had was between that house and this house. And I decided to go for this house. So I find that very funny that we have a little connection besides all the connections of you and Jean Millay and other people that we know. Uh, I was wondering, has the Grateful Dead then from that time uh, continued to support you in your work and in your different dreams and books and things that you've done? Actually, Mickey Hart has and his colleagues have made a contribution to a project that I'm currently working on that I can't say too much about because it's still in the work, so to say. Understand. But it's going to be a project to preserve the uh, healing traditions of indigenous people. This is a great interest to both Mickey and myself. And of course, the healing traditions of indigenous people will involve dreams as well. Mm -hmm. So I wish that there was a way that I could point to the 
painting that Mickey Hart did and which he sent to me for Christmas is hanging on my wall. Yes, he's a very talented artist among other talents that he has. Oh. Yes, he's also a talented author. I have three of his books. He um, continues to tour, of course, with Dead and Company, mm -hmm. which is composed of some of the original members of the Grateful Dead and then some of the uh, more recent editions. And they're still selling out houses all over the country, still going strong. Once, the, once Jerry Garcia passed on, we thought, well, that's the end of the Grateful Dead. No, they've been rising from the ashes under different names ever since. And so it's still going on. I've seen you wearing their jacket and you look very sharp in it. <laughs> that's a wonderful friends to have as they, they, it's wonderful them to have you as a friend and that your relationship has lasted all these years together and that they're supporting you in a wonderful way and if there's any contribution or anything that him or you ever want from me with my involvements with the Weecholes or the Mongolian shamans or uh, anything like that, I'm more than happy to help out in any way you can and anything that has to do with healing and indigenous people. Well, thank you. I'll keep you posted as the project uh, moves, moves ahead, right? In fact, I, I credit the fact that I had, um, cancer when I was in my thirties. And I was told that if I didn't uh, have it surgically removed, then it would spread in my body. But I really didn't believe it because I was raised with no doctors and I wasn't sure that they were really telling me the truth for some reason. So I ran down to the Huichol Indians in the mountains of Mexico with a 10,000 feet elevation. And when I got there, I went to see a shaman, but I never told him that doctors had given me a cancer diagnosis or anything. And they were doing their, their cleansing healing on my body. And when he got down to my, uh, to my crotch, he put his head in there and was burying it in there. And then he said to me with the Spanish, with the translation with Huichol, that I had a very hard round substance in there oh. that needed to come out. So that was when I felt, when I was sitting at the top of a mountain in Mexico, that's when I realized I really had cancer. Because when I felt the shaman said this to me, and that's exactly where my cancer was, it had to really be real. Exactly. So I went into a terrible depression up there because up until then I thought, oh, the doctors must have diagnosed wrong this, I mustn't have cancer. And I was so depressed and sad in that moment of realizing that I had cancer to face. And the father of the uh, friend of mine who had brought me there of the Weecholes, which happened to be because of a dream, I was given something that they said, this will help you to heal your problems. And I didn't know what I was eating at the time. And it tasted and was very salty and it was pounded in with a mortar and pestle. And I thought I was eating like dry deer meat that had been pounded. And when I had it for four days, I felt like superwoman, like I was given some amazing vitamin or something that I felt strong and ready to deal with the cancer and ready to go home and take have surgery or whatever I had to do. But I felt like a completely changed person from this depressed, oh my God, I've got cancer to, hey, I can deal with this. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I found out some years later, I was eating the dried blood of the deer that was caught sacredly and kept for only things like this to do healing for extreme illness. And the man was 102, I think, who gave me this mixture. And whether it did or didn't have anything to do with my healing, when I went and had the surgery, the exact white kind of substance that the shaman had showed me in his hand when he was sucking up the disease out of my body, which is the way shamans, some of the shamans do. I, 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 I had him show me with mirrors what my tumor looked like inside there from as they were opening me up. And there was this white filmy kind of substance, just like he had been showing me in his hands. And after the surgery, when I came out, the doctor came up to me and he said, I just want to say, I don't know what you did with your Indians, but you did something because the tumor has been encapsulated by your skin in the body. A tumor just got completely sealed over, he said, so it never went to any of the other parts of your body. And this was a year since I had been diagnosed. And he said, and it's all, I removed the tumor and everything is out. And he said, you hardly even bled much afterwards. So whether it did or didn't have anything to do with it, none of us will ever know. I'm just always grateful that I went to that shaman and had that 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 cleansing or healing with him because it put me on the right track. So oh. now I'm here 30 something years later still <laughs> and no cancer returned. And, um, and I'm very grateful to them. Well, I was in New York City years ago and I had a dream that I was looking at an x-ray and the x-ray revealed intestinal bleeding mm -hmm. and I said to the x-ray operator well we've got to tell the person about this right away he says well actually this is your x-ray and so I woke up and I went to the bathroom was passing blood Aye. so I had a friend of mine take me to Maimonides Medical Center where I'd been working years ago. And the very same surgeon who had worked on me years ago for another problem was still there. And he said, wow. you know, I had a dream about you last night. No. I had a dream about you since the operation. Oh my God, that's great. Yeah, so uh, I had another operation and um, Thank heavens, I haven't, haven't had a recurring problem with that since. That's, that's a combination, two dream, your, your dream, his dream, and both of you came together to take care of it. That's right, yeah. <laughs> that's very, very good work, Stanley. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we're going to be winding up our hour here, um, but I just wanted to say if there was anything you would like to mention to us about the different books right now, you have Understanding Suicide's Allure, which just came out this year. You have Advances in Parapsychological Research 10. And you also have, I believe, and I believe you're working on a memoir. Oh, good heavens. I don't know if I'll live long enough to finish it or not. Well, I'm you have a little bit of work every day, yes. Oh, you have a lot to tell. <laughs> yes, I have a lot to tell. 
So how about your book about understanding suicide's allure? Is there anything you want to mention about that? Actually, there's some unusual things about the topic in the book. This book has not one, but two chapters on the use of psychedelics in suicide prevention. Yes, it's the only text on suicide. Book up right here. Oh, yay, thank you. Here yeah. we are. Yeah, there we are. Also, I managed to sneak in a little bit of parapsychology in terms of past life experiences, near-death experiences, and all of the body experiences. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to that, uh, there are very solid chapters on the most effective means to prevent suicide or to treat a suicidal person. And so that makes the book very valuable for psychotherapists, but it's written on more of a popular style so that anybody interested in the topic can take a look at it. And each chapter is individual in and of itself. We have some chapters which are case histories. Mm -hmm. We have some chapters which deal with famous people and how they avoided suicide. And people like Jimmy Stewart, who people don't realize that PTSD and almost killed himself. Mm -hmm. and, yes, and, and other notable people who actually unfortunately did kill themselves. Uh, so there is a lot of very specific information that will be of interest as well as the more clinical information and the historical information and the uh, uh, suicides in literature, for example. So it really covers the waterfront pretty well. Does, um, I was wondering about lately, people have been all coming up with discussions about microdosing with psychedelic, especially specifically with psilocybin mushroom and that they're finding that this is really helping in psychotherapy for depression. Would this also be something that would help in the suicide situations where people are using therapy and microdosing at the same time? I would think so. That hasn't been checked out yet. Uh, microdosing has been around for a long time. And there's finally, after all these years, some research getting started. Mm -hmm. No, there's plenty of research on using psychedelics to treat depression, uh, more specifically with psilocybin, uh, the sacred mushroom, so to speak, and how it can be very effective in preventing depression. And the nice thing about psychedelics is you don't have to take them every day like you do with medication. Once or twice, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And the person then works through all of the insights and information that they got during the psilocybin session. It's, it, it's, there's amazing things that are coming into the forefront now. And it's people like you who've been there since the, the beginning of all of this that we're so grateful. You're, you're a treasure, Stanley. And I want to thank you for taking the time to come here today. I realize how busy you are, how many podcasts you have. And I'm so grateful you had the time to spend with us. 
I'm so thankful that we've had our friendship for this many years. In fact, today I wore, I don't know if you can see this, but this is Jean Malay's dress. Oh. And her daughter sent it to me. And um, I just feel like when I put it on, I don't want to get too emotional here again, but when I put it on, I feel her and you. And you and her had the greatest of uh, friendships together. And I feel that she's the one responsible for really bringing you into my life. So oh, I'm so grateful for her, for you, yes. and for our time together here today. Well, I hope that I finish my memoirs because Jean plays a very important role in the memoirs. And I trace how influential she was in opening up different things in my life. For example, it was a party she held for Ala Raka, the famous Indian musician, that I met Mickey Hart. Oh, that's, oh, he was yeah, the, he, he was the drummer of Ravi Shankar. Is that right? Ala Raka was the drummer of Ravi Shankar. Yes, that's right. And so Mickey Hart came to the party and when he found out that uh, I was a hypnotist, he wanted to talk with me privately. And he was hypnotizing some of his music students. And he had no training in hypnosis, but was using a proper technique, getting them to, uh, in their mind's eye, play the instrument. And so I gave him a couple of tips. And then just as he was about to leave, he said, by the way, do you like rock music? <laughs> and I said, yes, I love rock music. Just last night, I went to hear the Grateful Dead play. And he beamed from ear to ear. Well, then you heard me play. I played drum uh -huh. the Grateful Dead. That's a beautiful story, Stanley. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I love being with you. It's really wonderful that you're not too far away from me so I can drop in and visit again soon. Right. And you have a very, very wonderful, wonderful rest of the day. I know you're very busy, but thank you again and again and again for just being who you are. Oh, thank you and good luck with your podcast, I see. Thank you. Such a good interview where I'm sure it will go very well. Oh, thank you so much, Stanley. From, from from your mouth to the podcast, God's ears. <laughs> Love you. Thank you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. So thank you so much for listening to us today. I want to remind you that you can hear these episodes that we have today, tomorrow, the past, the future. We have lots of episodes coming up for you. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Google Podcasts. You can find us on YouTube. When you do, please like, share. If you have comments, things you want to ask us or any of the guests that we have, go to our site and you will find information there on how to, to contact anyone that you've seen here today. We look forward to hearing from you. Maybe you have a dream you'd like to share. Have a wonderful week. And remember, share your stories. They can heal. Bye.